Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alan Parker said, sometimes, with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to AllanTheBritFist.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Jamie Noel. Hello, Jamie. Hello. 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 We've come to talk about your feature film, written and directed by you, uh, Lie Low, haven't we? Yes. I believe so. <laughs> That's good. We're on the same page then. Um, <laughs> so before we go into any detail about it, do you want to give people uh, a brief synopsis to what Lilo's about? Sure. Um, Lilo is a um, about a, a, a young man called Parnell who uh, gets into trouble. He witnesses a, um, a knife crime and um, as a result... Um, he runs away um, to the French countryside with his mother. Um, in the French countryside lives his sister, um, and they go to stay with his sister. And whilst there, he kind of befriends um, uh, a father figure type who takes him under his wing, who's like a self-appointed shaman. And uh, through their relationship, he kind of comes to assess his life and his culpability in this uh, violent act that that opens the film. Um, meanwhile, the kind of repercussions of that violent act are slowly making its way to uh, the French countryside um, in an act of vengeance. Um, so yeah, <laughs> got you, got you. Okay, and and how can people see the film? Um, you can watch it on Amazon Prime right now. Um, it's also available on YouTube Movies and Google Play. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, so, you wrote and directed this film, um, and I think it's safe to say, you know, the idea of, 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 of some people running away from, from trouble to a, to a kind of strange place, so, you know, fish out of water, stranger in a strange land, is, is a, I guess, a traditional storyline um, that, that we, we've, we, we've, we've sort of seen, we've seen before in all sorts of guises. Um, yep. So what was what was for you? What was the because you take us from like a Medway housing estate to beautiful rural France for your adventure? Uh-huh. Uh, what was what was the um, what was it? What was the kernel of an idea for you as the writer of this that that, that gave birth to what became Lilo? The kernel of the idea was that I wanted to make a kind of poetic gangster film, right? Um, and 
what I wanted to do was was follow a group of people um, who had committed a crime, who then go on the run and then spend the rest of the crime, uh, the, the the film, meditating on that crime or trying to understand the repercussions of that crime, um, and slowly who those people were started to evolve. Um, first, it was a, a group of, I would say, gangsters, for lack of a better word. I don't yeah. really like that term. Criminals. Um, then it became some teenage kids. And then as soon as it became a family, then things just started to write themselves. I don't know why the family aspect just added this level of urgency and all of the... Um, the stakes were much higher. I was going to say that it's a universal truth, isn't it? You know, mother worried for a son. Mm. <laughs> go and go yeah. and stay with your sister. Expose a kind of a strange relationship as to why her sister lives. They're all they're all things we can believe. You don't have to. There's no bridges to build. There is about how how people were friends. They're just relatives, and we can fill in the gaps. This is it. Yeah, you you kind of and and, and you know to be honest, that the film really hits the ground running. You know, we 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 kind of almost start the film after the inciting incident. Yeah. You know, so I, I always was very interested in that as well, kind of literally cut into the chase. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's easier to do that if, like you say, you know, that these relationships are very, you know, the audience can very quickly make those connections to who knows who and, and what their relationship is. Um, and it allows you to just get on with the, the meat and bones of the story, or at least the character development. So, it, so, in a, so in a pragmatic sense, was you was you writing this with the view that you had access to this place in France? Or oh God, God no. Um, okay. I mean, I, I started writing it. I mean, it's the script is about four years old now. Yeah. Um, and and the, the story was being developed for maybe five years. Right. And and so. Um, Originally, I, you know, originally we were going to set it in a caravan park, okay, um, in in on the coast of England, and um, we were looking at um, caravan parks in Norwich. We were looking at caravan parks down in Cornwall. Um, the idea was that this caravan park was, um, you know, it was out of season. It was in the winter. It kind of had a, this eerie, um, maybe like a western type of feel, you know, um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. desolate. And, and and that was very interesting to me. But slowly, as the um, you know, uh, it, because we were taking quite a while to make it, there was other films that were coming out at the time um, that were all set on caravan parks. And slowly, it became a cliche to me, and I just moved away from that idea. Um, and and the, the the French location was a complete fluke. So. You know, originally um, we were trying to get this made for twenty thousand, and um, that was a, a essentially a figure that I plucked out of the air. Um, once we got a line producer on board, um, that went up to about two hundred thousand, and then um, we we pulled it down to one hundred fifty thousand so that we could try and get it made through the SEIS scheme. Yeah. Um, that all fell through uh, as kind of the first leg of, of trying to get it made. Mm-hmm. And then um, I got another producer, two other producers involved, and we tried to get it made through uh, Film London. Um, and th- we got through to the next stage, but ultimately we didn't get it made through those guys. 
Out of, um, in, out of interest, what were the? You say you plucked the twenty thousand out of the air um, as a kind of I figure. You thought, I guess, you thought you could raise to make. But what was what was your? What did you find was your disconnect between what you thought was possible and then what the line producer was like? Going, look, this is bare bones, mate. It's going to cost two hundred or hundred and fifty thousand. When I when I wrote the script, it was mm. maybe it'd been about maybe about eight years since I'd made a short film. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I'd made a couple of uh, music promos and documentaries and we had this script and, you know, um, I, I was talking to a friend and we were in the park and they said, look, I want to be a producer. I said, I've got a script. And I think it was just thinking that thinking very lo-fi at the time thinking, right, we'll, we'll shoot it with, uh, you know, Oh, sorry, pardon me. Um, we'll we'll shoot it with a DSLR. Um, we'll 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 you know we'll have a very small crew. Uh, people will work for free. It was just kind of. <laughs> I mean, it's it's ironic because that's kind of how we ended up <laughs> making it in the end. Mm. But but um, I, I I didn't think that the script I'd wrote deserved some sort of lavish. Uh, I mean, I don't think 150,000 is lavish, but, you know, Creative England and Film London, that's the kind of budget that they're... Well, it's, lav- it's lavish compared to 20, so, you know, it's all relative, isn't it? I, I suppose, um, yeah, I just didn't have, you know, and, and when once the line producer got involved, then it, it started to become very real and we, we got very confident. And we mm. thought, right, we might have something here with this script. And then we, when, we, when we got through to Film London, the, the first round... Yeah. It was like, okay, right, okay, this is an actual thing now, you know. So I was still in that hundred fifty thousand mindset for a while, mm. and said, right, look, they've 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 turned us down. It's probably because we're first time filmmakers, and I haven't done anything of note. So we went back to the drawing board. I wrote a, a short film called The Line, made that for a few grand, um, and then um, went back to Film London with a with a short film script called His Wake, yeah. got that made through Film London, it went to BFI, um, London Film Festival, um, and and that started filling me with confidence that I could then go back and, and try to get Lilo made. Um, we got another couple of knockbacks, but I think what was the most um, significant point was that a friend of mine sent me a video um, with one of the Duplass brothers, Mark Duplass, mm. talking about how the cavalry is never coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know if you've seen this video. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and so I started realising that the idea that I could get this film made through a funding body or even through private equity might be a, a pipe dream and that the easiest uh, or at least the most accessible way to make the film would be to reverse engineer the script, work out how I can make it for the least amount of money possible, mm. and then then make it. Um, it's interesting. Is, it's interesting, isn't it? That even given your experience of sort of your, your short filmmaking and your and your um, and your, your your music videos and documentaries or whatever, um, there's 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 still that thing when when people are moving towards first features of. Of almost like asking permission to do it in a way. It's not even about the amount of money in the end. It, it's almost like getting the money is almost like being given permission to make it, isn't it? In a in, in a mental sense, not in a not in a practical sense. Yeah, and and 
Which is just, a, it's just a bit of a perception, isn't it, rather than a reality in some senses? Well, well, I think it's both. I think, I think that, that, you know, you know, I had this conversation the other day. You know, Martin Scorsese took what twenty years to make Silence, hmm. um, and and so if if, if, a, if a director of that caliber has to jump through the studio hoops to get his, you know, passion project made. Hmm. Then it does. I mean, look, you know, 150,000 isn't a huge amount of money compared to a, a big Hollywood production, mm. but it's still a lot of money. And if you're, if you've got a, a, a you know, funding body and you're essentially taking in 600 applicants, you can only commission a few of those applicants. So at, at the end of the day, you have to give permission. Mm. You are giving permission. And from a film, Maker's point of view, I think a lot of filmmakers, me included, have this kind of sense of entitlement in our in our minds because we know our idea. You I know, think I think you have to, don't you? Really, without without it, you don't. Everyone would stop, wouldn't they? Well, yeah, of course. And I, but I, I, yeah, it's a kind of weird thing that you. It's quite. You know let's be honest. So it's, it's, I was going to say it's, it's almost. I mean, in a way, it's quasi delusional. You know. But, it, but, yes. it's, but, in a, but not in a pejorative sense. Um, no, I, I, th- I think it's not even quasi. I think it's purely delusional. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't want to um, put words in your mouth. You know, um, no, I, I think it's purely delusional. But that's what I think. That's what drives it. And it's not not delusional until you're on the set making it. Mm. In fact, in fact, it's not delusional until it's it's out of you know on the edit. Well, let, let uh, me let me just rewind a second then. So when you're when you're writing this. Um, just so I can get a bit more about the, the experience of sort of taking what obviously you've got experience of the short film form, um, but then obviously writing a feature is a very different task altogether. What for you in writing Lilo, knowing what your idea was and what you were trying to achieve, uh, what were the storytelling challenges for you? Because you've got quite a, quite, quite a, um, while, it, while it's a contained film, there's a number of people we've got to hear from and get their points of view in. Um, yeah. So for you, what was, what was the storytelling challenges in, in, in writing Lilo? Um, I always find the, 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 the most challenging thing is, is just physically writing. <laughs> you know, um, I'm, I don't consider myself a writer mm-hmm. and, but I love, I love dialogue. I love, I love sort of sitting there and, and just, just, you know, having, creating characters and then just having them duke it out. Mm. In in a um, in a scene, yeah, and I can I can write that all day long, right? Um, but then when I have to kind of translate that into the physical script form, then I, I it feels like I'm I'm studying for for an exam. Um, really? So, but, but yeah, I, I find like as soon as I write in interior, <laughs> you know, um, any sort of stage directions, I really struggle with because I think. Dialogue is just your ear. It's what you hear. It's what you feel uh, the character will say at any given point, and that seems to flow. Yeah. Um, as soon as I'm writing a stage direction, I'm very aware of the reader. I'm very aware of being judged. <laughs> and my my grammar, my language. You know, whilst the dialogue is kind of there is no grammar. To, I mean, there is grammar to dialogue, but you, you you're not being tested because the people in that world. Speak how they speak, regardless of uh, you, you know. There's no 
there's, there's no judgment. No, I'm not you're saying it. The, the, the character can speak how they want because they are the character. This whereas, whereas there are rules attached to how a paragraph is written to say how a man, Ex- how a man might walk in a room. Exactly, and also that 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 kind of thing of trying to dictate to the audience how to. That's how really, to it's really inter- that's really story. interesting to hear for me because I'm I'm a writer, not a director. Whereas you write a director, and and. Even though you're right, I, I've always thought when you're writing as a writer director, you're essentially writing for yourself. I've, yeah. I, I'm surprised, in 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 a, in a pleasant way, that you're as conscious of what third parties are going to do when they read it as much as as I am. Well, I, well, I think even even more so because you know if you're if you are the writer director, mm. you you've already visualised most of the film before you've even put pen to paper. Right. So trying to closely get to that, basically essentially translate what's in your mind to the, you know, like some people talk about a script being a blueprint. Um, I'm almost trying to dictate exactly how the viewer, how the audience member, the, the reader of that script wants to feel and what they want and what I want them to see in their mind mm. um, in a very literal way and and very specific so I, you know and I'm sure it, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day that's what I've come to learn you know people see what they see and hear what they hear you, uh, you just need to get the information down as as as, as closely as possible it is it is like I, mean, I, I remember an early screenwriting class I went to where where the, the, the sort of the guy taking the session was to prove that point, what you've just said, actually, he said, he said, there's a screenplay and it looks like a screenplay. It reads like a screenplay and it's beautifully formatted and it's eloquently written. And there's a screenplay that's not eloquently written. That's not well formatted. Diddle it and goes on and on with the repeating the opposites of what the, 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 the beautiful looking thing is. He says, which one sold? And, <laughs> and he goes, and then he waits, he waits for everyone to go, Oh, I don't know. And he said, <laughs> the better story. Yeah, and it's kind of of like, and while you don't want to obviously make it hard for the reader to find the story by writing a load of wishy-washy nonsense, um, there's 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 a huge nugget of truth to that in the sense of when you sit down to write it, no matter how badly prepared you are to sort of present it in a way that makes it easy for the reader. Ultimately, if you don't sit down with a story, then you might as well not sit down. (laughs) This is it. This is it. And uh, you know, I've, I've read a lot of screenplays, but obviously. I'm not part of the industry, so the the, the screenplays I've read, I've, I've read, uh, like Faber and Faber, you know, mm. <laughs> and so they're all big hits. Yeah. Uh, and essentially, I think what um, a lot of script developers or, or producers and, and people in the industry, uh, script readers, what they have an advantage of is reading a lot of bad scripts. Mm. And so, you know, um, I didn't know whether my script was bad because I've never experienced that before. So. Again, I think a lot of, you know, being naive and a little bit of ignorance can go a long way. Because so you, in what you, sense then, what would you, what would you, having got this far then, and obviously, and people can now see the script that you wrote, what would you say is an important lesson learned then for you, through having gone through this process of doing your scripts and taking it to screen, what, what did you learn about screenwriting for you? Um, at this stage, because mm. I made I made the film for fifteen thousand, mm. and and it's made and it's there and it and it exists. The advice I would give, and I know what you're you're asking, but the advice I would give is it doesn't matter. Like like just just get it done, get it out there, and just make it because 
the, 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 the big learning curve for me is, is, has been the doing it. Like there's so many script courses and you know, you can get bogged down with people giving you notes hmm. and you can be trying to make this perfect film. Um, and I think if you were making a 150,000 pound film through BFI, there would be a lot of pressure to try and make this a work of art and a, a piece of genius. Whilst I saw this as my film school thesis, I thought this is this is a learning um, tool for me, mm. and and I know that when I come away from it, I'll be a better filmmaker. Um, I, I, you know, I, this I know the mistakes I've made because when I watch it, there's, there's things that I okay. Look, look, I'll reframe it the other way around then, because if that if that if that's what it was, if it was like a big learning curve for you, then obviously they say you write a film, you shoot a film, and you edit a film. So yeah. what did you learn about story when you came to the edit that you didn't know when you wrote it? Um, the good, very good question. Um, I, I suppose, uh, you know, the, the, the big mistake that I made was, was trying to do maybe three, maybe even four genres in one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, <clears throat> Being very confident that I could do that, and thinking that you know, give, give me give, just just for my entertainment. Then, tell, what what are the three three or four genres you think you did? Well, I thought it was an ensemble film for starters. I know that's not technically a genre, but well, no, it but is. I, I'd agree. I think it is. Yeah, I thought it was an ensemble film. Yeah. Um, when I was writing it originally, yeah. um, I thought I wanted to delve into the the crime thriller yeah. genre, and I wanted it to be a social drama. Right. Um, and even those genres have hyphenated <laughs> so they include you know two different types of things so um i you know i wanted i wanted the kind of laconic laid-back semi-improvised sort of feel of shane meadows but then i wanted the urgency and the kind of the the purposefulness and the cinematic language of say fincher or, or even hitchcock you know so i was trying to do a lot of things but i, I, I was never trying to do that on the surface, I was trying to absorb a lot of that, those examples of films, mm. and then push it, push it down into the DNA. Yeah. But obviously, when I got to the edit, what I realised is that there was at least five scenes too many, and I was trying to juggle subplots. And I thought, you know, and I had, you know, people who had read the script had, had sort of told me that I shouldn't do that. And to be honest, I'm glad I did try it at least mm. because if I'd got rid of it at the script stage and then got into made the film, uh, there would be a film that existed in my mind that I'd ever made. Whilst if you go through the process of writing the script, it might be a bit overlong. It might have too many scenes, but then you film that you understand why those don't work. And then you absorb that information and that knowledge properly into your dna so you un, you really understand it a lot of the industry again going back a lot of the industry specialists they know that because they've they've experienced it but if you tell somebody who's inexperienced they can't hear it because they, they just don't know what you're talking about you know? well, well interesting interesting you said because recently there was a reissue on jeff goldsmith's q a podcast of a 2009 interview with tarantino and, and weirdly, he talks about this, and he he still he knows some scenes are not going to be needed, but yeah. he writes them in, and he even films them if he can afford to, yeah, because it's part of understanding. 
the yeah. overall. And it's and I think for someone who doesn't make films, it's sort of hard to imagine that. I mean, I've had conversations with producers where we write the script, but we know 25% of the dialogue's going to go. But we have to have it in the script for when people are reading it versus what will end up being needed for, the sh- for what ends up being edited together. Yeah, and I think that's and that's why I say you, you, the film. You know, it's not I haven't made this. So this is a sort of tried and tested, isn't it? You write a film, you produce a film, you edit a film, and it goes through a journey. I mean, yeah. when you're shooting it, you can forget. I'm guessing. Uh, I mean, let's let's let, give me give me an example of a of a of a of a moment when you're shooting the film where you've got what's on the page and what you can achieve in the time you've got is not right. So you have to compromise what's on the page. To get enough of what you need to shoot, have you got have you got a memory of anything like that from the shoot? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, we <laughs> the, the location in France, mm. um, the last day of shooting, yeah, um, we were locked out ah, the, 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 by by accident. Um, we went out to shoot in in kind of a it's kind of like a vineyard orchard. Um, like an olive grove yeah. uh, in, in, at the back of the of, of, of the uh, of the villa, and um, and the owner of the villa went out, um, mm. and we'd forgotten to take the key with us, so we were locked out, and they were. It was, it was notoriously bad connection on the phone in that area as well, so we couldn't contact them at the time to come back. So we had to improvise. Um, a lot of the action was going to take place inside the house mm. the last scene of the film and we had to shoot it on the veranda and um we kind of had to improvise um a lot of of, of that scene and and weirdly it, it's one of my favorite it, it be kind of it kind of came became one of my favorite um scenes so yeah i mean i suppose that's more of a practical uh, no that's, that's exactly what i meant though but, but it's like that idea of Things will happen that you can't have predicted. So obviously, forgetting the key isn't in the schedule, is it? No. <laughs> but the schedule keeps moving because the clock's ticking. Uh, so this the idea it. that you ended up making that scene is as a result of needing to do something appropriate as opposed to what you set out to do. So, well, great... well, I mean, I mean, another another great sort of happy accident was that you know we we were shooting in February uh, mainly in in London, but partly in, in Kent as well. Hmm. Um, but we had probably the worst snow we've had um for, for, since you know for, for a few years mm. and um me and my girlfriend were driving from kent to into london and we were stuck completely stuck in traffic oh. um, and i started panicking so i jumped out took what i could um uh, what i needed to actually film the scene and jumped on a train and got there maybe 10 minutes late um but you know, was able to shoot, but we didn't have half of the the, the equipment we needed. But um, I was going to say that, and that, that, I mean, I don't know which scene that was to get, but I, I, watching the film, it, it, it was it's it's a really nice aesthetic. The um, the the snow, the snow on the ground, and the kind of yeah. sense of the cold against the kind of monochrome, all black clothing that the kind of you know estate youth wear. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's really strong. I mean, it really. It, it, I think if you had not had snow on the ground, it it wouldn't have the same edge almost. I mean, it just wouldn't be the same film. And it, yeah, but also, you know, we were shooting Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. On the Monday, it was snowing, and I was avoiding shooting any of the snow because we were shooting interior. So I was trying to disguise the fact that it was snowing. 
by by Tuesday, at the end of the shoot, I'd got confident enough to know that um, we that that we we can shoot some scenes, some exterior scenes with snow. Mm. That from now on, any scenes in London we can shoot with snow. So it was just literally by the seat of your pants making decisions. And I suppose you know I'm not. When I say I've shot documentaries, I'm not from a documentary background, but I do a lot of corporate films as well. And, yeah. and when you turn up on set, you work with what you've got. Yeah. It's that simple. And, and, and so, you know, being flexible and understanding that, that you know, what we, what we have is what we you know, have got to use. Mm. And, and, and I suppose you can be, I imagine you can be spoiled. Well, I have been spoiled with some of my short film sets. You know, you can be spoiled with the Vanity Crew, 25 people working around you, you know, uh, shooting on Alexa, uh, controlled environment, hmm. uh, controlled lighting. You can be very spoiled and it can almost diminish your creativity, you know. No, um, I, remember, I remember listening to uh, George Romero only made one studio film. He made Land of the Dead. Oh, yeah. And he, yeah. To- and he talks about how that, that was the he, – he lost all creative control because he got a shed- – he, he agreed a schedule of shots and that was it. If he did, if he tried to deviate from the from the schedule, he had to get permission. Yeah. And he was saying that there was times when they were travelling between locations that he would see something and go, "Oh, that would be better." And if he was making a film in his traditional way, he would have stopped the car, stopped the crew, they'd have got out, they'd have shot the scene there, and not bothered with what they were going for. Yeah. But because of the constraints of the controlled environment, it means also you have to almost control your imagination as well. Which is kind of a, an odd one. Um, let me let me uh, let me move us on because mm-hmm. I think that there's two there's two two actors that I want I want to focus on. First, obviously, is Aaron Thomas Ward who plays Parnell. Um, yeah. He he. Uh, I think it wouldn't be um, it wouldn't be rude to describe him as that kind of stone. He's stonewall cold, isn't he? In the beginning and okay. and what you do what you do through the process of the film is is, is take away that. That kind of protective thing, which we all do, you know, just living in London, it's impossible not to not to have that face on that says "Don't talk to me." But obviously, <laughs> if you if you add into that the idea of um, gang rivalries and petty to, to major criminal activity knocking around in the housing estate where you live, then that front becomes who you are. So, in a way, you take him from that person he thought he was to expose him to something he never knew he had inside him, and. A, how do you go about picking somebody for that role? And B, what was your conversations like with Aaron about the different stages? So obviously, I'm guessing you didn't shoot in linear fashion. So, yeah, so um, we um, we'd met. Um, he, he he'd been in my, my my previous short film, His Wake. So he's mm. the lead in that. Yeah, where he he literally. I think he's got about three lines in that whole film. Um, so there's a lot of listening and a lot of kind of absorbing other people's information. And we got to know each other on, on, on that shoot. Hmm. And I was fighting the idea. I, I, I thought, you know, he's really good, but maybe he's a bit old um, for Parnell. Maybe he's not exactly how I want Parnell to be. But And I came around to the idea and then we started talking. And as soon as I offered it to him, he jumped at the bit. Um, but yeah, I, I think he, he's very expressive and I knew that who, you know, not sort of almost 
not having a lot to do in the first act of the film, you need somebody who can kind of be expressive without being pouty or sort of a brat, you mm. know. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Aaron's very good at that. He's very natural. Um, he's also very inquisitive and. You know, we had long conversations on the phone um, where he's constantly probing about the, 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 the character and has lots of ideas about who the character is. And I, th I think he immediately knew what type of, you know, he, the type of kid that he was going to be playing and, and where, you know, I think where he comes from, there's, there's those kids in his sort of peripheral vision. Um, uh, and... Um, as, as far as kind of shooting out of chronological order and him knowing where he was, I think I actually ended up colour coding um, the script. Okay. Um, so there was different moods, and um, I mean, I actually, actually tried to write the script based on a, it's called the Kubler Ross, um, the five stages of anger. Oh, okay, I've heard of that. Um, so the five stages of anger are uh, it's it's dabda, so it's depression, denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and acceptance. And and so there was this kind of structured, loose structure that I had for the film, but then I tried to apply that to his character as well. Mm. And so you know we we'd we'd kind of had this color coded. Um, thing going on in the script and then when um, in one of the earlier drafts at least and I think that kind of helped guide where his state of mind was at any given time hmm. no it's good that's interesting that um, I mean I've, I'm interested in what you describe I've never heard that theory before but I've, I, 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 there's, a, there's a similar thing called that they use in corporate world for change management which is the sort of change curve which has got like four boxes which is like sort of anger denial accept and then it the last thing's acceptance, um, very similar sort of similar sort of mood, you know, mood colours. Um, yeah. One thing that the, I think as well, his character is is the, as dark as it goes in terms of what's gone on, and I won't spoil it for people before they watch it. But but in terms of his character being that kind of stoic, you know, shut down exterior to someone who is open to ideas and suggestion, mm -hmm. is is kind of a in a, in a way, it's kind of a hopeful story because it's that. You know, we, 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 we condemn we condemn our youth in the media for being, you know, cocky, know it alls and whatever. Um, yeah. but it does take a it does take a big kid <laughs> to 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 be vulnerable and allow people to try and make you better, even though what the you know, and it's quite extreme in terms of what you do in this film, but but just that idea of opening up to someone and being vulnerable when you've all you've ever done is shut down and try and be tough. Is quite. Yeah. It makes Pano quite a hopeful character as well, even though it's in the midst of a story which is hopelessly tragic as well. I, th I think you know. Ultimately, I, I don't think it's a romantic idea. I think it's it, it's quite a realistic idea. That, that, that but it's my personal idea mm. that, that I think no matter how affected anybody is, whether it be a youth or somebody in the mm. you know. Uh, twilight of their life if they've committed horrific acts or if they're i don't think anybody's above saving um 
you know, I'm not a religious person, so I don't mean that in a kind of religious way, but I think that ultimately whatever somebody's done, Mm. it's as a result of a number of events or uh, environments that they've experienced or that have been thrust upon them. Mm. And all all it takes is for them to be given an opportunity uh, to experience um, somebody to have faith in them, somebody to to believe in them. Um, I was watching watching a TED talk yesterday with, um, I think it's called Johan Harry, talking about Portugal's experience of decriminalising drugs. Yeah. And they're giving, uh, what do you call it, recovering addicts mini microloans to start businesses there and it's yeah. all of, it's this idea of connecting people as opposed to isolating people yeah and, and it's this idea that the people who are connected are much more successful at coming off drugs and if you disconnect the crime of drugs from the equation you have more chance of being connected with society because you're not isolated to start with um so yeah i i think i i i kind of go with your optimism that, that no one's beyond saving it's just that the rules of the game are what fuck you up, really. Um, now, the flip side of, um, of of Pano's character and why we get to see this this potential in him is, and and at the beginning where I said where where I was talking about your film, saying isn't that there's it's it's something we've seen before in the sense of the setup. What we what, what I loved about what you bring to it that then gives us something new, a new way of looking at it is is Johnny Vivash's character of Bill. Yeah. Now, first and foremost, in a story about redemption, where in the world did you come up with the idea that a sort of self-appointed shamanic figure, based on you know his own his own his own personal redemption, which we get we get we get shades of throughout the film, where did that idea come from? And also, then, where did, how how were the conversations with Johnny about planning? Because I think it's it's a really 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 interesting offshoot to the whole overall drama that's going on is that this this almost like coaching spirituality alongside what essentially is dire shit happening back at home yeah and i mean originally um again it was kind of leaning towards more of a sort of criminality and and redemption sort of Mm. traditional western and originally bill's character was just somebody with a um, potentially criminal past, mm. um, and and that was kind of you know um, heightening the themes of people running away and trying to hide from themselves. And then I I personally had some experience with a, a, a shaman, and um, uh, I, I I had a, a ritual um, mm. with um, ayahuasca, oh. um, and um, which. It's, it's kind of the inspiration for what happens uh, with Bill in the film. Um, but uh, immediately within, I think, maybe three months, the script was being rewritten to kind of um, reflect my own personal experience. Mm. Um, and it wasn't just, you know, I felt better after this experience or felt, you know... Um, sort of uh, like uh, a revelation had happened like a personal revelation I don't think that's strong enough I did a lot of research afterwards mm. I wanted to know what had happened you know what I'd been through and 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 in the context of of what I'd been through there are um 
and, and and how it might reflect on the film. There's actually um, a church in Brazil, and it's the only church in Brazil that is legally allowed to administer ayahuasca. Um, wow. And, and um, they have um, ex-convicts, um, people, well, convicts as well, but like people who are in jail for violent crimes, hmm. for sexual abuse, for um, sociopaths, basically. Yeah. And um, they go to the church and um, they spend a week with the shaman and they have significant records of, of, of uh, these cr- criminal elements being pretty much on the road to redemption afterwards. And, and so, you know, my own personal experience wasn't quite that dramatic. It was more that I was depressed and I was in a bad way and my personal relationships weren't quite what I wanted them to be. I was pretty angry and pretty um, neglective to the, the people who were in my life that were around. And after mm. my own personal experience with this uh, ritual, I that completely changed. Um, and so I felt... At first, I was very like, as soon as the idea came in my head, oh, we could make Bill a shaman and we could kind of reflect. Um, I, I backed away because I felt it was exploitative. Mm. I felt like, oh, yeah, you just, you know, kind of taking advantage of this uh, this beautiful thing that happened. But in the end, I was like, well, I can't see any other way, really. I've, I've got to. It's like a truth that I've, I've come across and, and now it needs to be part. And so as soon as we started writing that he was a shaman and um it it, be, it it really made sense um and it felt it felt like a little bit of a deus ex machina but at the same time i don't mind that you know um um and so um johnny was somebody um i um uh, we'd auditioned very early on hmm. um before we got rejected and 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 had to go back to the drawing board and make a couple of other short films he was in his wake and so he'd just been along for the whole journey and just kind of been a little bit of a mentor as well because he's very experienced with film festivals and short films and just kind of um, almost acted like an executive producer. Mm. So, yeah, he's just been uh, he's just been really helpful. And so having access to him meant that we could develop that character Um and he even, for the ritual, he even, uh, because we couldn't have him, uh, you know, chanting in some ancient tribal Peruvian uh, Amazonian language, um, he went off and translated some uh, Gaelic, ancient Gaelic. And so that's what you'll hear in, the, I mean, I'm going off on a tangent here, but this, no, this, no, is, no, this is really interesting. You know, so, so he really got very deep into the character. Um, but, 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 but it's interesting. Just, just from a kind of story point of view, it's interesting. You say you, you've, it could be maybe seen as a as do sex massacre, but to me, it was it, it from the moment we met Bill at the beginning of the, when when Parnell first meets him, you kind of sense there's help, even though obviously Parnell says, "Oh, go on, run on, fuck off." Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and 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 the look in in Johnny's eyes, the way he interacts with him is that I'm not giving up on you. You might well resist me. And I love that interaction with him. So when it comes to something as grand as a as a ritual over an hallucinogen um, for 
Because it's almost like for, for Parnell, and, and, and obviously Bill knows this as a, I mean, this is me reading into the Bill, but like, from what I understand, Bill, Bill's someone that knows you can see the light if you look for the light. Whereas yeah. obviously Parnell wasn't looking for the light, he was running away from it, is for want of a better expression. And then in that moment when he comes to him and it ends up turning into the ritual, he's basically a bit, a bit like in a religious way, and I know it's not religion, uh, when people, talk the way people talk about finding god it's like they spend all their life not and then suddenly they see and in a way in that little micro moment panel understood i mean it, it, it leads to something much more dramatic and i won't i won't um i won't spoil it but in that in that moment again i think that's where maybe i got i felt i got the hope from because it was just great to see <clears throat> in a dark story in a in a traditionally dark story of criminal activity and wrongdoings you had this character of Bill um, who who wasn't prepared to condemn Parnell. You know, it wasn't just about wagging a finger at, the bad, at a bad man for being bad. It was like, I know that there's good in there. And that's kind of quite lovely. Yeah, and I, I suppose that was, you know, um, thank you. That was kind of <laughs> pretty much sums up what I was, I was aiming for, you know. Mm. Um, um, yeah, and 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 when you've got, I mean, it, it was quite kind of quite amazing filming that scene because because both actors got really into it, mm. and there was just me and the the sound guy filming it, and for a moment we all kind of had this really weird moment, <laughs> you know, we all looking at each other going, oh, what's just happened, you know? Um, how, so long, how long did you, how long was the tape for then? How long did you let that go, as it were? Because oh, we shot we shot that for an, an, an afternoon. Um, we shot, we had the whole day to shoot that scene. Right. I okay. knew that I knew that we needed to to be pretty focused and and um, yeah, we, we we shot like long takes of that mm. um, just to get those guys in in the in the right headspace and just to get the rhythm of it because it is very specific. Um, and I think if you kind of like cut it to, I mean, it, you know, the actual ceremony is much longer, but if you, if you start cutting it down, um, into a, a one minute, um, soundbite of what that experience might be like, I, th I think it would sell it short. So, mm. well, look, uh, let's remind people then when, how and where can they see Lilo? Um, Amazon Prime, it's available and, um, YouTube movies and Google Play. Well, look, Jamie, it just says me to say thank you very much for giving us your uh, the story of making Lilo. That was very interesting and lots of insight there for uh, for filmmakers who are sort of thinking they're waiting for permission to make their first feature film and maybe, by the sounds of things, they just go out and do it. Yes, please. I, I, I think everybody, I urge everybody who's sitting on the fence thinking about that just to go out and do it. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv.
Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.